to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, uh, Psalm 131. Psalm 131, we're getting towards the end of uh, our current sermon series, looking at the Psalms of Ascent, only a few more of these to go, and today we're looking at Psalm 131. And this is what the psalmist uh, wrote to God's people back then, as well as to us as God's people today. Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, in his book on these psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, pastor and author Eugene Peterson writes that every culture has certain stumbling blocks that it places in the way of those who seek to live out the Christian faith and the gospel. Now, some of those stumbling blocks are relatively easy to recognize. Uh, In our own culture, for example, there's the stumbling block of greed. The fact is that having a life that is only oriented around money and possessions and their accumulation makes participation in the Christian life about as difficult as going through the eye of a needle, at least according to some guy named Jesus. Uh, And I think most Christians would acknowledge that. Another one would be our current cultural views on sex. Because put simply, believing some of the things that our culture says about things like sex and sexual identity sets up another stumbling block to the gospel, and there are more too. But not all of them are so easily recognizable. As Peterson says, some stumbling blocks get made into a monument, gilded with bronze and bathed in decorative lights. They become objects of veneration and approved ways of living. In other words, they get baptized, even by those in the church, and come to be viewed not as the stumbling blocks that they are, but instead as virtues, as attributes, and as qualities that we should pursue. One such stumbling block I've thought about a lot in recent years is our cultural value of telling it like it is, shooting from the hip or speaking your mind. And to be honest, as much as our culture loves that idea and lifts up those who live it out, the fact of the matter is that it flies directly in the face of the Christian fruit of self-control, specifically self-control of the tongue which is something that scripture actually has quite a bit to say about, especially the book of James. To put it simply, telling it like it is and saying whatever you think is not a Christian virtue. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And the same thing is true of another culturally accepted value in our society, that of pride. As Peterson points out in his chapter on this uh, psalm, Pride has become something of a cultural virtue these days rather than the character defect that it used to be seen as. Uh, Peterson writes, it is difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. What is described in scripture as the basic sin, the sin of taking things into your own hands, being your own God and grabbing what is there while you can get it, is now described as basic wisdom. Improve yourself by whatever means you are able. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. For a limited time it works. But at the end, the devil has his due. There is damnation. Harsh words, but I think he's right. 
What was once described as the original sin, it was a prideful attempt at self-sufficiency and being able to live without God that tempted Adam and Eve to reach out for the forbidden fruit in the garden has now become more or less a merit. We no longer worry about those who exhibit pride. Instead, we seek to emulate them. We make the arrogant executive who runs the world his way into a role model. We say that the diva who throws a tantrum every time she doesn't get what she wants is simply standing up for herself. And we call the athlete who cares less about the team than his own personal success a gamer. We don't try to avoid becoming prideful anymore. We embrace it. And again, that flies in the face of scripture and it flies specifically in the face of this psalm. This is one of only two of the Psalms of Ascent attributed to King David, and it's an interesting one for him to have written, given that David was a successful and widely praised figure in the Old Testament. And yet this Psalm is one that quietly reflects on the virtue of humility. After all, listen again to how David starts this Psalm in verse one here. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with matters or things too wonderful for me. There's a modesty to those lines, a meekness, a kind of gentle unassumption. David's words here don't lift up praise and venerate our pride the way that our culture does. Instead, this psalm celebrates the opposite. It celebrates the Christian value, the Christian fruit, I would say, of humbleness, humility. You know, I think the best definition for humility I've heard is that humility is having an accurate view of yourself in relation to the rest of the world. Humility is having an accurate view of yourself in relation to the rest of the world. And that's what we see here in verse one, right? My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. To have a prideful heart, to have haughty eyes is to be disdainful. It's to look down on someone else, to savage them in your mind, to see them as inferior and not worth your time. And David says here that he is not that way. Even as a king and ruler of God's people, he's not prideful, he's not haughty. Instead, he tries to see himself accurately. He knows where he stands. He knows where he doesn't, too. And he tries to live out of that standing in relationship with others and in his relationship with God. As he says, I do not concern myself with matters or things too wonderful for me. If you think about it, that's a great definition of humility, right? What David is saying here is that the humble person doesn't try to butt their way into business that isn't theirs. They're not busybodies interfering with everything and everyone else around them. They're not meddlers who have to be involved in every single thing and everyone else's affairs. Instead, they know when to leave well enough alone and when to let something go. They know when something is none of their concern. They know when something is, as David puts it, too wonderful for them, and they simply let it be. Again, humility, true humility, is having an accurate view of ourselves in relation to the rest of the world. It's knowing where the line is and whether something involves us or not. In other words, appropriate humility is neither underestimation nor overestimation of ourselves. And this is an important distinction, okay? Because some people mistake humility for underestimation. Being a humble person doesn't mean that you underestimate yourself, though. 
Humility isn't self-loathing. It's sometimes mistaken for that, but that's not what it is. It's not self-hatred. It's not masochism. It's not seeing yourself as worse or less or lower than you actually are. In fact, it's not seeing yourself as, as bad or, or terrible at all. But neither is humility over estimation. It's not seeing yourself as the end-all, be-all, the greatest, the number one, the most real and glorious person to ever live. It's not even seeing yourself as the second most real or glorious person to ever live. And that's because humility is not seeing yourself as more important, noteworthy, or significant than you are. Instead, humility, neither underestimation nor overestimation, is simply correct estimation. It's seeing yourself as you really are. And it's seeing everything and everyone else around you as they really are, too. And then it's being content with that. That's the image that David offers in verse 2 here. In verse 2 he writes, But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting as a parent seeing differences uh, between your children. Uh, Sarah and I are starting to notice that with our own two boys. Uh, for instance, Levi, our, our two-year-old, has always been what I've called a slight kid. Kid eats and eats and eats and eats, and yet he's thin as a rail, okay? Um, our seven-month-old, though, Titus, is a bit on the chubbier side, and he has the rolls and baby fat that Sarah always wished Levi would have had when he was the same age. Levi was more of a snuggler. He, he liked to nap in our arms when he was little, not so much now that he's two and a half, um, whereas Titus hasn't really ever done that from the start. Titus, though, smiles a lot more. Levi was always kind of stingy with his baby smiles. And one other difference that we've noticed is that Titus is much, much louder when he decides that he's ready to eat. Okay? That kid goes from zero to 100 like that. But eventually that goes away, right? Because once a child weans, they stop drinking breast milk and go to solid foods, mealtime becomes much less of an emergency for them. They don't hit that panic button the same way. They might still get hangry from time to time. In fact, I know some adults who are the same way, right? But they're not melting down, raising the roof with their screams and demanding that very instant to get what they want, at least not as much. There's suddenly a contentment that comes for a wean child, a calm, a quiet. Mom is no longer the on-demand source of nourishment that they need right now, this instant. Instead, mom can simply be mom. The child no longer needs to yell and beck and call her. It's that he can simply rest in her arms at peace, content and happy to be with her because he knows that he'll be provided for. And that, David says, is the state that humility leads to in our lives. It leads us to contentment. It leads to seeing ourselves accurately the way that we really are, neither underestimating nor overestimating ourselves, leads to a calm, quiet, contentedness, like what David describes here. We're like weaned children in the arms of our mothers. Pride doesn't do that. Pride doesn't lead to contentment. It breeds discontentment. Pride makes us needy, dependent children screaming out for what we want when we want it. But humility weans us of that. It soothes us, it secures us. It soothes and secures us because it tells us and shows us who we really are. It gives us an accurate picture of ourselves, and this is key. It also shows us the true source of our contentment. 
because humility shows us the Lord. And that's where David goes next. That's how he ends this short psalm. In verse three, he writes, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Like I've said uh, repeatedly this morning, humility is having an accurate view of yourself in relation to the rest of the world, but it's also having an accurate view of yourself in relation to God. And that's why humility leads to contentment. Because it reminds us who we are in relation, not just to other people, not just to those around us, but actually in relation to God himself. We are not God. In fact, we're nowhere near his level. And so all our prideful attempts at self-sufficiency, self-rule, and self-direction just sort of evaporate when we're humbled. Again, like weaned children, we rest secure in the arms of our parent. And the parent whose arms we rest secure in, says David, is the Lord. We put our hope and trust in him. We see ourselves accurately in our relationship with him. And our estimation of ourselves, who we really are, is based on our estimation of who he really is. Not ourselves. And if we're honest, though... That tends to ebb and flow a little bit in our lives, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we might actually hit that nail on the head. We might live humbly in a state of contented humility, just as we are and just as we should be. But other times we don't. We underestimate ourselves and fall into the trap of anxious insecurity, thinking everyone and everything else is better than us, more worthy than us, more likable and lovable than us. Or we make the opposite mistake. We overestimate ourselves, pridefully and arrogantly seeing ourselves as the captain of our soul, the lord of our life, and the king or queen of our own little dominion. The truth is that the slopes on either side of humility's middle ground are slippery indeed and easy to fall down. And we fool ourselves if we think anything different. Or if we think that it's only others who deal with that difficulty and not us as well. That's why Charles Spurgeon called this psalm one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. I like that. This is one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. And Peterson says in his book that this psalm is a maintenance psalm because humility properly understood and properly practiced requires constant attention, constant maintenance, constant work. And Psalm 131 helps us accomplish that work. You see, this psalm is, in a sense, a heart check. It's a psalm of self-assessment. It's a humility self-screening, if you will. That's because it forces us to ask ourselves the question, how am I really doing with pride? How am I really doing with humility? Am I or am I not viewing myself accurately in relation to others, in relation to God, and in relation to the rest of the world? Am I underestimating myself? Am I overestimating myself? Do I have a prideful heart? Are my eyes haughty? Or am I humbly and realistically estimating myself accurately? For instance, do I look down on others? Doing so is a sure sign that we don't view ourselves accurately in relation to the rest of the world. After all, all people are made in the image of God and are therefore worthy of inherent dignity, value, and respect. What that means is that we're all equal before God. We all stand before him on equal footing, regardless of whatever else might differentiate us or make us look different. 
And humility teaches us that. It eliminates in us the need to figure out where we rank on that totem pole of society, right? Well, he's down there below me, so I'm better than him, but she's actually up here, so I need to do a little bit more work to get up to her level. That's not humility. Instead, that's actually falling into both the traps of underestimation and overestimation at the same time because it's looking down on some, looking up to others, and estimating ourselves correctly in relation to neither. And humility, this psalm, weans us of that. Another example, do I butt into others' business and give them advice even when it's not asked for? I'm actually preaching to myself a bit on this one, okay? This is one I struggle with. After all, I read so much and I know so much and so people should be grateful when I condescend to bless them with my incredible wisdom, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the truth is that I just don't know when to be quiet sometimes. And part of it is because I'm not humble enough. I think I'm better than other people. I think that I know more than them. I think that I'm smarter than them. And if I'm really being honest, I think that they would be better off if I shared some of that wisdom and intelligence with them. And so I do whether they've asked for it or not. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here this morning who struggles with that either, right? But that's not humility. Instead, humility is knowing when your advice is needed, but also when it's not. Or how about this one? Do I always think I'm right? You know, I have a friend back in Milwaukee. Um, He's a smart guy. He's actually way smarter than me. He's a college professor, but more than that, the reason I know that he's so smart is because of his way with words. Um, Put simply, he's one of the quickest people I know. He's got a response for everything, and often they're the most funny, clever, insightful little quips you'll ever hear. Anyway, he told me a story one time. Um, It was early in his marriage, and he and his wife got into an argument, and they're going back and forth, back and forth, trying to convince each other of, of their side fighting for what they thought was right. And finally, his wife, in exasperation, just threw up her hands and looked at him and said, you know what your problem is? You just always think you're right. And there was a moment of silence, and then he said back to her, yeah, of course I think I'm right. If I didn't, I would change my opinion, and then I'd be right again. (laughs) Now, he does admit that while he still thinks the logic of that statement is solid, uh, it was definitely not the right thing to say at that particular moment, okay? But this is another one that I struggle with too, right? And I'm sure it's something that some of you struggle with as well. And I'll say it simply. If we always think we're right, it precludes humility. You can't be a humble person if you think that you're always right. Those two things don't go together. They can't walk hand in hand. They're like oil and water because humility, true humility, is knowing that sometimes you're not right. And it's also having the willingness to admit that as well. And that's a final example I'll give for humility. Um, Can I admit when I've made a mistake? And not just to myself, but actually to the others who that mistake has affected as well. And let's go a step further. Can I admit it even when no one else has caught it? Just volunteer it. That's a humbling experience, right? Having to go to someone and say, I made a mistake, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. You can't do that if you have a prideful heart, if you have haughty eyes, if you're always concerning yourself with things that are too wonderful for you. And we could come up with other examples too, right? The point is humility, like so many other aspects of the Christian life, takes maintenance. And this psalm helps us maintain it. 
Do I see myself accurately in relation to the rest of the world? Have I right-sized myself in my mind, neither underestimating myself nor overestimating myself? Do I see myself as I really am in relation to others and in relation to God? After all, as Christians, we follow a Savior who humbled himself, right? I actually used this text as a gospel tie-in earlier in the series when we looked at Psalm 123. And uh, I also know that Nate's going to be preaching on it in a couple of weeks, so come back to hear the full treatment of it then. But it's just too good not to quote here because it's such a perfect companion text to this psalm. And that's because it, it so beautifully illustrates the kind of humility that David is describing here. Okay, In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, that's what we anticipate. That's what we wait for. That's what we look forward to during this season of Advent. We anticipate, wait for, and look forward to the coming of a Savior who humbled himself for us, for our sake, for our salvation, so that we could be made right with God once again. I mean, when you think about the miracle of Christmas, it's truly unbelievable, right? The Son of God himself became a human. He became a baby. He became one of us. Yes, he did. He humbled himself in that way. He humbled himself by living among us for 33 years and teaching us. And he humbled himself by going to the cross on our behalf to suffer and die there for us. In other words, he didn't esteem himself so highly that he ignored and looked down on us in our sin. Instead, he did what he needed to do in order to rescue and save us, even to the point of sacrificing himself in the process. And that's how we ought to live, too. We need to be people of humility, accurately viewing others, ourselves, in relation to others and to God so that we can live as God's winsome witnesses to all, that he puts the, to all of those he puts us in contact with. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you sent us a Savior who did not remain detached and above us and look down on us, but one who came to live among us to minister with us, to be one of us. Lord, that's truly mind-boggling. May we live in the same way, Lord. Help us to be humble people, living out this Christian fruit, so that our light and our witness might indeed be convincing to a world that desperately needs it. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus left us an enduring um, sign 
and seal of that humility at this table. And so we come to this table this morning uh, together as his body. And we recognize a couple of things at this table. This table, in many ways, is a looking back. It's a remembrance of that sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, uh, that humble sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. Uh, This table also helps us look ahead to the day when we will enjoy fellowship with Christ in glory. And it also helps us look around at our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, both here in this congregation as well as around the world. So those are the things that we keep in mind as we come to this table. And let's read through the liturgy of the Lord's table together now. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Hear the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Strengthen us, O God, in the power of your spirit to bring good news to the poor and lift blind eyes to sight, to loose the chains that bind and claim your blessing for all people. Keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. Let us acclaim our Lord as Savior and God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. And the bread that we break is a sharing in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask you to please uh, find in your pews uh, the communion cups, the prepackaged ones. Lift up the top part uh, to take out the wafer. This is the body of Christ, given for you. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. And the cup for which we give thanks is our participation in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. invite you to open the next part of the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice and how it has made us right 
with God, our Father, once again. We thank you for the hope that we have as we anticipate not only your coming at Christmas during this Advent season, but also your coming again. Help us to look forward to that day with hope. And Lord, we thank you too for this body of believers, these brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that you have given us in the meantime. May we serve as co-witnesses with each other, encouraging each other, comforting each other, caring for each other, as you have called us to do. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.